Good evening. Uh, Bob asked me to be one of those who stood in his place while he is away. Uh, so, with the help of those in the high school class, we're going to talk about the compelling story of water in the Old Testament. So, uh, the next slide, I have a second title to the same uh, lesson based off what we're doing in the, the high school class this quarter. And so this is what I, I don't know if you remember, but when I announced the class, I called it uh, Bible Lab, uh, where we'd work on themes from the Bible. And so what we've been doing is we have 19 to 20 high schoolers in the class. We have seven exhaustive concordances and 21 Bibles among us, right, whether we bring our own Bible. So what we do is we take a, couple, a, a topic, and so, so far we've done two, well, we started a third today. We've done blood, we've done water, and today we started mercy and, and grace. And we take that exhaustive concordance, and I divide it up among the groups with the concordances. Somebody drives a concordance, and we just look up the incidences where you have, have blood and the instances where you have water. And then we evaluate the context. We try to say, okay, what's, what's in the context of this use of the word water? We group the results, and then we try to draw conclusions about what we see. And so this is kind of a, an experimental, not experimental, it's, it's kind of like approaching it with like, I'm just going to see what's there. I'm going to see what, what God has laid out in his word. I'm going to group it together, and we're going to see what we can find. So literally, this content has come from the high schoolers class, because we come in there, with a, we start with a whiteboard, and we just start throwing it all on, on the board, and they look for eight to ten minutes, and uh, then we start putting it up on the board, then we try to group it, and then we come to conclusions. So like I said, we've only covered two topics, and we're on like a month and a half to course. So we it took us about four classes to cover water, so I'm not going to cover all of water tonight. So I'm going to confine myself to the water in the Old Testament, all right? Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of present this kind of as if, like, uh, this, was, this was the lab that we did, and here's, here's the results. Uh, I'm gonna, so I'm going to show you, so overall, water is important for life, and we can all agree on that. But as we're going to see, water can be used to give life, but water can also be used to take life away. And now that's instantly going to make you think of the flood, right, to take life away. But that's not the only place where it comes up, right? And you're, we're going to see that as we look over these things. And so we're going to, we're going to, one of the, the groupings that we came up with after we took all of our incidences of water and you can ask the question, what do the Old Testament events that include water tell us about God? And overall, we had uh, four categories, and we start, and I, the first one is power. Water, sh water is used so many times to demonstrate the power of God. It demonstrates God's judgment in many different uh, instances. It demonstrates his mercy and his grace. We didn't really bring this one up in class, but I, I, we were grouping them together, and I was grouping, we were doing this grouping, it's like I'm, we're missing something, and then I realized we're missing mercy and grace uh, for some of the topics that we needed. Water is often used for, in, in, for a form of salvation in the Old Testament, and it's explicitly, explicitly said that it's salvation through water. And then there is faith. So let's start with power. Water demonstrates God's power. 
So by power, that means the power of God to control water, to move water, to do something with water, whatever he wants to water, because he's the creator of water in the first place. And that's actually where we start in day two, in day three, in Genesis chapter one. Uh, starting in verse six, it says, Then God said, Let there be the firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament, from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Verse 9 says, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and in the gathering together of the waters he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. And then he does more things on the third day. But those are, the, those are the, the key things. God's controlling the water in the first place, showing his power from the very beginning, showing his control over water. And that ties directly in next to the flood. If you just flip a, f a few. So what I'm going to do is gonna, I'm going to hit these topics across several stories. And so we're going to have to jump back and forth between some of these same stories several times. So to highlight in, for the story of the flood, God's power over the water. Let's look at at 6.17 in Genesis, where he tells Noah, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then if you flip over to 7 and verse 11, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the deep were broken up, and all the windows of heaven were open, and the rain was on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So that verse 11 ties directly back into Genesis 1, where he says, well, I was the one who separated the waters and the land in the first place, so I can bring the waters back up to wherever I want them. And we know, you know this is for in the form of judgment. We'll talk about that as we move along. There's also the first plague. If you go over to Exodus chapter 7, controlling the water. In the land of Egypt, water, the Nile was everything. Because if you look at satellite pictures of, of Egypt, it's just a desert, except for this one area down the middle where the Nile is. And in Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 17, God's going to start out his demonstration of power, but besides the things that he, you know, he, the Aaron's uh, rod and the, and the serpent, this demonstration to the whole of Egypt of his power. Verse 17 says, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the, the water of the river. Then Aaron then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch it out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. So it wasn't just the night, it was every body of water that was there. God's demonstrating his power to all these Egyptians at once. I have control of this element. I am the God that you need to be paying attention to. Crossing the Red Sea. Uh, in Exodus chapter 14, 
specifically verse 16, where he tells Moses, But lift your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. In 21 and 22, where it says that, And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. And then it says that the, the children crossed on dry land. There's also Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And we'll get to that one a little better. But, but if you remember, it was a showdown between the prophets of Baal and God. But to me, always the kicker is that, you know, Elijah digs his well. He built his, has his altar. He digs a trench around there. And then he says, here, go, go take a bunch of water and drench the whole thing. And then just go drench it again. And so that there's so much that the, that the ditch around the altar is filled with water. All right, we'll, we'll come back to that one a little bit later. But also encompassed in that, if you look in 1 Kings 17, also encompassed in that story is the denial of water, which again brings like, I can, I can, I can give you water for life, but I can also take it away. In 17 verse 1, it says, Elisha the tip to, Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. So the whole showdown in Mount Carmel is encompassed by a very long drought. And it's a drought that is showing, as we're going to see here in a minute, it's showing judgment. And at the end of it, after the, the showdown, is at Mount Carmel. All right. Judgment. The flood. Obviously the flood. And we flip back to Genesis chapter 6 again. And we have the reason why God is going to destroy the earth shown to us in verses 6 and 7. It says, Then the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds, of the air, for I am sorry that I have made, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then twenty through twenty-four. Uh, actually, that's the wrong word. Uh, so he, we know that you know he's going to destroy all living things during this time. But also in terms of judgment, the first plague was a judgment as well. It wasn't just a sign. Back in Exodus 17, where Exodus uh, 7, where I just read, there's the, the god Hapi, or Happy, the Nile god in Egypt. It was a god of annual, so the annual flooding of the Nile River, river deposited rich soil on the banks for growing crops. It, it basically provided nutrients. And so the important thing that we see, and actually in Exodus chapter 7, is not only that he changed the things to blood, but that everything died. Uh, verse 18 in, uh, in Exodus chapter 7. And the fish that are in the river shall die. The river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. So not only is he demonstrating his power, but he's actually ex executing judgment on one of the main gods of Egypt. It's saying, you think the Nile gives you life? I'm the one that gives you life. And I can take the Nile and all the other water away and exercise judgment because I am God and you're worshiping false gods. The crossing of the Red Sea itself in Exodus chapter 14 was both 
an opportunity to show power and an opportunity for God to show judgment. As we know, the children, are at, at the children of Israel are at the banks of the river, and they see the Egyptian and Pharaohs coming in their chariots, and they're scared. They're like, why did you drag us out here in the first place? But in the end, in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 23, after the children had just, in verse 22, stepped onto dry land, and the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off the chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us free from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them and against us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch your hand out over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full death, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. So here, just as he shows his power to the Egyptians, he shows his judgment upon the Egyptians, just as he did back in Genesis chapter 6. It's the same thing with the prophets of Baal. If you remember the prophets of Baal, they spent all that time, all half that day, calling upon their God to get that sacrifice of theirs lit, and they couldn't do it. But then, just to kind of add insult to injury, for the, and, they, and literal injury, because they were cutting themselves and bleeding, and, and Elijah was saying, maybe he's gone on vacation. You need to speak a little louder for your God. So then, Moses, then not Moses, Elijah says, let's, let's, let's wet this thing. I'm going di- to dig this ditch. Let's wet it then pour more on it, and then pour more on it. And then he, when we'll see, in a, in a, when we get, uh, read the account a little bit later, that the water was gone when he called upon the Lord, and he only had to call upon him once. But also after the drought was over, and the effect of it, which we'll keep coming back to, the drought was, 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 was finished. <coughs> the other great example of, of judgment is the story of Jonah. In Jonah chapter, as we know, Jonah was sent in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 2. It says, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah didn't want to do that. And as a result, he was trying to flee on a boat. And in verse 4, it says, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was brought about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and the men cried to his God, out to his God and threw the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and then lain down and would fallen asleep. So the captain came to them and said to them, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise and call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And then they cast lots and they fell upon Jonah. And they're like, Well, who are you? What's going on? And he says in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. We have an incident of water, and he goes all the way back to Genesis 1, who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 10, the men say, why have you done this? For the, men, for the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said, what shall we do to you that the sea may calm? For the sea was growing more tempted. He's like, well, throw me in. And like, no, we're going to try a little harder. Eventually, they throw him in. 
Uh, so they picked Jonah up in verse 15 and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and took the sacrifice and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. So in Jonah's incident, it shows the power of God to Jonah and to the men, but it also shows the judgment for him trying to flee from God. So another thing that the wa uh, water demonstrates is God's grace and mercy. This is first shown in Genesis chapter 6. Just after he says that I regret that, I'm, uh, that I've made the earth and man on it. In verse 8, he says, I'm going to destroy everything. In verse 7 and in verse 8, he says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And in verse 18, he says, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wife with you. <coughs> so he shows grace. And we talked about today in class and grace. He found favor. He found favor in the sight of God. The saving of Moses in Exodus chapter 2 when he was a baby. He was put into a small basket and put into the water. And uh, um, this is uh, actually uh, mentioned to some extent in Hebrews. We'll talk about later. The crossing of the Red Sea. This is a really interesting one. In Exodus chapter uh, 15, after they have crossed, the children of Israel are, are celebrating their great victory and their great deliverance. And starting in verse 11, it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders, you stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You, you in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Speaking how his mercy saved them from the Egyptians. His mercy and his grace, the favor that he showed them, saved them from the Egyptians. The prophets of Baal. <coughs> now the prophets of Baal were not shown any mercy, but the people were shown mercy at the end. When the drought ended, specifically, um, we'll see here in a minute when we get to the category of faith that the people who, who, who were doubting God or had no preference between Jehovah God and these other gods, especially Baal, that God did show them grace and mercy and ended the drought after the showdown at Mount uh, Carmel. Naaman's leprosy in 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was the leper. He was uh, of the Syrian army, commander of the army of the king of Syria. And in verse 3, his, um, one of the servant girls that was from the land of Israel says, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And in verse 10, Elisha tells him, after panicking at first, he says, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. So Naaman, <coughs> who's even mentioned in the New Testament, because he found mercy and grace, even though he wasn't an Israelite. And that point is made sure. Jonah appeals to God. This is another very good one. In the midst of this disaster surrounding water, 
Jonah, in chapter 2, prays to God. In Jonah chapter 2, he says, I cried to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surround me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds are wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth was with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now mind you, this is Jonah when he's in the fish. He feels like he's already been saved. Because he was thrown into the water, then the fish swallowed him. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed salvation is of the Lord. So not only is it the God's grace and mercy, but it's also salvation. Obviously, there's the salvation of the flood, and we don't even have to look at the, at the Old Testament. We can look at the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 3, which we're all familiar with, where it makes the comparison of, uh, of the saving of the souls on the ark with baptism. In 1 Peter 3, and verse 20, it says, Who... Formerly were disobedient when the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Uh, we don't think of the flood first and foremost as being a moment of salvation, but it absolutely is. But it's at the same time an opportunity of judgment that God executed judgment upon the world. The crossing of the Red Sea, as we looked at before, it's an exercise in salvation. And in fact, before they cross, Moses stands up and says, after, before they complain, Behold the salvation of the Lord. So when he's going to execute judgment upon the Egyptians, he's also going to execute salvation for, for those of Israel through this great moment that involved water. Even Moses striking the rock in Exodus chapter 17 the people were not demonstrating, you know, were trying and testing the Lord. <clears throat> In Exodus chapter 17, verse 2, Therefore the people contended with Moses, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, <clears throat> Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us, and, your children, and our children and our livestock thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And he said to Moses, Go before the people and take with you some of the elders, and take your hand, and take in your hand your rod which you, with you struck the river, the same one you struck the, the river and turned it into, you know, turned it into blood, or when you also, um, this, when you held it up and you parted the waters, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. So there's 
They're starving for life. They're like, we don't have water. We're going to die. We need water for life. And God provides again, even in their lack of faith. But Moses had the faith to do what he was told. The witnesses to the Mount Carmel showdown. After seeing what God had done in 1 Kings chapter 18. In verse 39, we'll talk about what he saw when we get to the, our faith category here in just a second. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. If you'll turn just before that, in chapter 18, in verse 19, Elijah is very upset with the people. He says, Now therefore send and gather out all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, and who eat at Jezebel's table. In verse 21 it says, And Elijah said, called to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. They're like, show me something you got to show me something, because until you show me something, I'm going I'm, I'm to split my odds between Baal and God. And then it says, Elijah said, I alone am left of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. Therefore, let us give, give us two bulls. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it into pieces, lay it on the wood, put it on the fire under it, and I will pray to the other and lay it on the foot, wood, put it on, but put no fire under it. Both of them to put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of my God, the name of the Lord, and the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So it, sh so it all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. This is a good idea. And we'll read the actual event when Elijah calls here in a second. But at the end, they definitely changed their tune. After seeing what had happened, which this, you know, to me, this also... Is a, is a different use of water, but it definitely involves water just to make the point that God has the power. Jonah delivered by the well. The last verse that I didn't read there in Jonah chapter 2, after his prayer, is pretty simple. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah on a, onto dry land. So after this great event of showing judgment of, of, of Jonah's actions, uh, they cast him over the side. He's saved by the fish. He stays in the fish three days, and then he uh, makes an appeal to God for his grace and mercy. Then he's vomited. But as a result of that great event of water, the city of Nineveh was saved as well. Because then he did what God told him to go do, to tell them to repent, and they did. He wasn't exactly happy about it, but, but he, he did. And then finally, water demonstrates faith in God's power, judgment, grace and mercy, and in his salvation. For all of these different stories, Noah building the ark, we don't have to go to Genesis 6, where we, we, talk, we can go to Hebrews chapter 11, where it tells us that <clears throat> Noah had the faith. Hebrews 11 and verse 7, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, 
moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world <coughs> and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. By doing what he did by faith, he condemned the world because he chose to trust God and trust that God was going to do what he said he was going to do, and he was going to do it with water. So through that same water that condemned the rest of the world, by faith, Noah was saved. Moses in a basket, saved from, uh, from Pharaoh in Hebrews eleven twenty three. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. So then the next step is when they put him in the river and he floated down the river and he was noticed by Pharaoh's daughter and then raised in the house of Pharaoh, only later to become one of the great saviors of the children of Israel, often demonstrating the power of God that he was representing through water. Crossing the Red Sea, Hebrews eleven twenty nine, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. Faith, power, judgment, salvation, the grace and mercy of God, all through the Old Testament incidents of water. Moses strikes and speaks to the rock. By faith he did those things, even though there were the rebellious people at the time saying, why in the world did you bring us out here? We've got to have water or we're going to die. God will provide you water. The first time he did it as God's commanded. The second time in frustration, he struck again when he was supposed to speak. But still, God provided the water. <clears throat> the crossing of the Jordan, it's a different incident. It's not so much where they had to save themselves, but it was a, an important incident because you think about it. Who was that generation that crossed into the Jordan? It was the generation that didn't see the Red Sea. It was the generation who, after the wandering in the wilderness, the, uh, the priests stepped into the river Jordan and the waters were stopped, they're flowing, and then they cross. So they were reminded as they were about to go into the promised land, that promised land that they had been promised their whole life, that God had done this before in a similar way, and our parents told us about it, but we're going to see it again and we're going to make a memorial of it. But by faith they entered in, in, into the land, this time ready to conquer. This time not doubting the power of God. Remember that. That's going to come up here in a second again. Name and dipping in the water Jordan. In Luke chapter 4, he's mentioned among those, when Jesus talks about how all prophets are rejected by their home, he refers to Naaman as the one who wasn't even, a, 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 who wasn't even a, uh, an Israelite. And there were, he says there were lepers all throughout Israel. But the only one who was cleansed was uh, that Elisha cleansed was Naaman the Syrian. And remember in the story of Naaman, he's first like, well, why do I got to go down to the Jordan? There's other waters that are a lot cleaner. The Jordan's kind of murky. What if I have to go to... So, well, the, the servant girl said, well, if he'd asked you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? So by faith, he did what he was re-asked to. Let's see, I'm going to go forward. All right, yeah. And finally, let's look at 1 Kings 18. I think it's, it's just... <clears throat> the actual, the moment in the, in the account. 
where Elijah speaks, uh, does his part in the competition. <clears throat> we'll start actually back up in 32. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seas of, of seed. And he put the wood in, in order, and he put the bull, cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood, and he said, Fill four water pots with water and pour it onto the burnt sacrifice in the wood. Then he said, Do it a second time, and they did it a second time. Then he said, Do it a third time, and they did it a third time. So water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the sacrifice, evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. That whole account, with emphasis on the water, just to add emphasis. It says, I'm going to use this moment where I'm offering a sacrifice to make a point. I'm going to drench it with water. They've been all day trying to get their sacrifice offered. Can't get it lit for anything. They've cut themselves. There's 450 of them. And in verse 39, 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. And this last phrase is my favorite and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And it's in that next verse that they say, the Lord, he is God, and the Lord, he is God. And in the next verse, he says, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let them escape. So they took him down to the brook Kishon and executed him there, all 450. He executed judgment. He had a demonstration of faith. He had a demonstration of power. And right after that, in verses 41 through 46, the flood, I mean, so the drought is ended. So he uses water. <clears throat> so altogether, water in the Old Testament shows God's power, his judgment, his grace and mercy, his salvation, and the faith of those people in the power of God to, to execute what he said he would do. So here's the conclusions on the Old Testament events involving water. Every Old Testament incident event that directly involves water demonstrates God's power in some way. If it's centered around water, it'll demonstrate God's power. When we started into this, Luke goes, yeah, but aren't we just going to see some references to water? And yeah, there are places where you just crossed the water or went to water. But then we had to parse through that and say, okay, if it's a major incident that involves water, what does it tell us? And it tells us about God's power. Every incident of God's judgment with water that condemns also saves. When God's grace and mercy are involved, those saved recognize it, such as Jonah or the people who crossed over the Jordan. Salvation by water is about God's power, judgment, and his grace and mercy. All of this through Old Testament stories about water, none of them about New Testament. Now, we went through the same process through the New Testament. I don't think you wanted me to go through all those tonight as well. An active faith in God's power are, is required to escape his judgment. So all these things, so the people had to walk 
through the water. Naaman had to go and dip in the Jordan. Elijah had to put all the things on the sacrifice, then poured it over with water. Moses had to strike the rock and then speak, but he stroked. They, they did something by faith. So water in the Old Testament actually shows God's plan of salvation. As demonstrated through 1 Peter 3 and 20, uh, that incidence there is also followed up by verse 21, which we all are very familiar with, that ties directly the judgment of uh, the flood with salvation. There is also the antitype, which now says, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know the grace and mercy that God showed us through, through uh, Jesus' sacrifice and through his offering in Ephesians 2. We know that there's judgment involved with baptism from Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, he that does not shall be condemned. But there's also references to God's power. Everything that Jesus did in the Gospels, and if we, what we did in the classes, we went, okay, let's look at every incident we can find of water in the New Testament. And you go to John 2, where God, uh, Jesus turns the, the, the water to wine. Jesus walking on the water. The different times he heals people that involves water. All, of it, all the examples of water in the New Testament, are, sh are there's shadows of them in the Old Testament. And in many ways, the examples in the New Testament are like demonstrations plus. Jesus didn't have to be thrown into the water. He just walked on it. Jesus didn't have to be thrown into the water. He just talked to the winds and the waves and calmed the water. He was of higher order than all of them. <clears throat> One last conclusion about water. No amount of water can save someone if they lose faith. What did the children of Israel see? They saw the water turn to blood. They saw the crossing of the Red Sea and the death of Pharaoh and his army. They saw multiple moments of water being altered or brought forth by Moses, and they saw countless other signs and wonders. And yet they did not make it to the promised land because they lacked faith that they could take the promised land, as he said. So while there's all these examples of God's, uh, you know, how he uses water to demonstrate what he can do, no amount of water can save us if we lose faith. So essentially, through all these Old Testament stories of water, I can talk to you about the plan of redemption, right? I can talk to you about the plan of salvation. We can layer on all the examples of water from the New Testament. We can appreciate more that Jesus says he came with water and the blood. We can spend time talking about water and its connection to blood. But it's really powerful. So when you go to talk to someone about the importance of water baptism, where should you start? How about you start in Genesis chapter 1 and work your way all the way through how many times God uses water to show his power. When you talk about the plan of redemption, you talk about God's judgment that we're in sin and the grace and mercy that he has shown us by, show, by Christ and the salvation through Christ, and we have to have the act of it. But we should also talk about how baptism demonstrates the power of God. Because God has always used water to demonstrate his power. And the power of, there is great power in baptism. And that it has the ability to tie us to the sacrifice of Christ. 
through the burial of baptism and to wash away our sins. And if you have someone who's skeptical and says, really, just dipping myself in water? Well, no, not just the, it's, as 1 Peter 3 says, it's an act of faith. Just like God has shown from the beginning of time, since he parted the water, since he made the firmament and the waters above and water below, through the power of water, God has demonstrated his mercy, his judgment, his salvation, and the faith we need to have in him for all those things. So I hope this has been beneficial. We've really, I've really enjoyed the class. I hope the kids have gotten a lot out of it. The invitation is always there. There's nothing magical about the water that's back here. But there is something mighty in the power of God to save us from our sins through water, through Christ, and having our connection to his sacrifice, his blood, through that water. But you have to have faith. You have to have faith that God has that power to remove your sins. But he's been demonstrating it throughout the whole Bible. If anyone's subject to the invitation, please come as we stand and sing.